everyone, and welcome to Building the Machine, a new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over the next 12 episodes, we're going to bring you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you'll see how the machine was constructed, all the highs, all the lows, and the legacy that remains even to this day. Each week, we'll be bringing you a new episode focusing on a single year, from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, you're going to enjoy the chance to experience the story as if you were there. And learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. We'll also include thoughts on what was different about baseball in that era, from salary negotiations to the way the game was played, to the things that happened that made this team become what it became. Now, if you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this should be a fun blast from the past. I'm Chad Dotson, and joining me now to discuss 1969 and the early stages of the construction of the Big Red Machine is Bill Lack. Bill, tell me uh, a little bit more about this podcast and let our listeners know exactly how this project came to be. Well, it's it's kind of an offshoot of, of the pennant podcast that you've been doing. And you, you, you know, and I had kind of talked about them, and I, and I kind of came up with this idea of, of doing them year by year in the Big Red Machine. And you and I talked about it, and we thought it kind of could be a fun idea and talk about how the Big Red Machine came into being. And I think I'm probably the only one of the guys that does the podcast that's old enough to remember any of these players or any of the, at least any of these teams. And so we're going to jump into this and, and see what happens. Well, I'm, I'm excited about it. And the reason why I thought it was interesting when you first brought uh, the idea to me was that. You know, uh, I learned this when Chris Garber and I were researching our book, uh, The Big 50. This, you know, The Big Red Machine kind of hovers over the Cincinnati Reds organization. But these days, there's not that many people that really, truly remember what exactly happened. And we found lots of anecdotes. And we're, we're hardcore Reds fans that we didn't know about these uh, these teams. And so I thought it would be fun to have uh, put down this document, basically. Uh, just really go year by year and talk about what it took to build that uh, Big Red Machine and and how it became what it was and, and its legacy today for those of you that you know didn't experience it or that don't know that much about it thought it'd be a fun way to, to look at it so we're going to begin with 1969 that was some kind of year huh bill it was in a very exciting year and and we're going to talk a little bit about the reds and we're going to go into the 68 a little bit just because to, to set up 69 but we're also going to we're also going to talk about our favorite baseball book because that was 1969 when that took place, and there, there and there are some Reds factors in that book. Absolutely, that's one of the uh, one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Let's talk now about the calendar year '69, a big year not just for baseball and for the Cincinnati Reds, but also for the United States and the world. First moon landing was in 1969, the Apollo 11 mission. Neil Armstrong, uh, what do you think about that, Bill? Well, if you weren't alive at that time, you really can't understand. I don't think you can grasp how exciting the space race and the space program was for young, young kids, young guys, you know, young people like, like I was, I was in 69, I was 11 years old and I had my model, you know, Saturn five and the lunar module and all that stuff. So, I mean, you, you, unless you were alive at the time, I don't think you can really grasp how exciting this was. A lot of you uh, kids out there are going to be surprised that also in 1969, the first message was sent over ARPANET, which essentially marked the creation of the internet. Did you have the internet in uh, 1969, Bill? No, I didn't live right next door to Al Gore. <laughs> you didn't have any uh, Wi-Fi at your home? No, I didn't. Have, yeah, and, and Al Gore hadn't hooked me up yet. <laughs> he invented the internet. That's true. Um, 
Some of the things that happened that year, the first ATM was installed in Rockville Center, New York. The Beatles gave their final public performance and then later in the year released Abbey Road. So uh, coming to, to the end of the Beatles, but still a, a landmark year for the uh, the greatest rock band in history, right? Absolutely. The, the rooftop concert at Apple Records. Uh, right. And, right. And it was, uh, if, if you've never seen videotape of that, do I don't, I'm sure it's available on YouTube or something. It's It's pretty cool. Absolutely. The Woodstock Festival took place in New York. Now, did you attend the Woodstock Festival, Bill? I was a little young for Woodstock. Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> Plus, um, I don't like mud. <laughs> plenty of that was available. Um, plenty of mud and, and free love. Woodstock, 1969. The Vietnam War raged on, obviously, and that was uh, probably the, one of the biggest, maybe the biggest headline, uh, certainly in America, during that year. Um, and it was a big year for the B- Vietnam War, uh, as much as you can say it was a big year, right? Yeah, well, the biggest thing to me was that the Paris peace talks began. Of course, they they ran on for three more years before the you know the Americans left Vietnam, uh, but it was the beginning of the the beginning of the end. And the last major battle, American battle, was fought that year on Hamburger Hill in in, in Vietnam in the Oshu Valley. Yeah, I think that was the, you're the first troop withdrawals were actually made. So maybe it was yeah. the the point where the the, the America was uh, in the process of extracting itself. From that war. Uh, that year, Richard Nixon sworn in as the 37th president of the United States. Move on to pop culture. A lot of interesting things in pop culture right around then. The Godfather. I'm talking about the novel by Mario Puzo was uh, released that year to wide acclaim. Did you ever read The Godfather, Bill? I just reread it recently. It's, it, it's, it holds up. I read it. Uh, it's been a few years now, but it's pretty good, right? It's it's excellent. It's and it. it, it, it if you can say it's better, any movie is better than the movie Godfather. The book is really, really good. Yeah, it's outstanding, and I would encourage anyone to read that. Uh, in music, Led Zeppelin released their first album, self-titled album that year. And uh, Chicago, you big Chicago fan, Bill? I'm a huge Chicago fan. Being at the at, have been, having been the world's worst high school trombone player. <laughs> I've been a Chicago fan since they released their first album, which they released in 69, Chicago Transit Authority. And also that year, the Who's, Who released Tommy. So big year, big year in music. Uh, now, but, but let me, let's me let clarify for our listeners. You say you, you're a big fan of Chicago. You don't mean the Cubs. No, I mean the band. Oh, okay. All right. In television, the Brady Bunch premiered along with uh, Sesame Street. Monty Python's Flying Circus, all those premiered in 69. And, and Bill, you came up with uh, my favorite one. Uh, what else uh, premiered that year? Scooby-Doo. Oh, Scooby-Dooby-Doo. Where are you? <laughs> Fantastic. Now, on in movies, Midnight Cowboy was released. It ended up winning Best Picture. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid uh, in some ways changed movie making as well. Big year for, big year for movies. Uh, what else was out there that year? Well, Midnight Cowboy was the first X-rated, the only, and I think the only X-rated movie to ever win the Best Picture award. And I've never seen Midnight Cowboy. I've seen it. It was Best Picture. It was, uh, it was a picture. Yeah, and also that year, Easy Rider was released. True Grit, which won John Wayne an Academy Award. Yeah, Best Actor, John Wayne. Yep, and you and I are both big Bond fans. And uh, Honor Majesty's Secret Service came out that year, and the big thing in that movie to me was Diane Rigg. Diane Rigg was in it. I mean. I was in love with her from the Avengers. What I uh, liked about that movie, or what's interesting about the movie, is uh, George Lazenby in his only yep. outing as James Bond 007, and, and really pretty good Bond, uh, underrated. 
Yep, he was a good Bond for an Australian Bond, but apparently he was pretty hard to work with. He was. Considering he had no acting experience and he was a model, I believe. Yeah, and then demanded a seven-picture deal after it was over. <laughs> they said, uh, no. And so in the next uh, movie, which was uh, Diamonds Are Forever, Sean Connery returned to the role. 1969 as well, the Manson family murders, those were committed. Uh, if you saw the recent movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, you got some uh, sort of an alternate ending to those, but uh, the Manson family murders. Um, in baseball, we're going to talk a little bit more maybe about uh, some of this, but I do want to mention, because the, the biggest things to me that in baseball, outside of what we're going to talk about in the podcast, Willie Mays hitting his 600th home run. Joining Babe Ruth is the only two to go over 600 at that time. And the Montreal Expos became the first Major League Baseball team outside the United States. So that's uh, that pretty well wraps up 1969. But it's time to talk about the Cincinnati Reds in 69. And to do that, we really kind of need to go back to 1968 and the things that were changing in baseball between 68 and 69 that sets up the creation of the Big Red Machine. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing to me is is that 68 had been the, the year of the pitcher. Um, it was the most dominant year of pitching in, in, in the modern era. Uh, Bob G- the, the National League leader in ERA was Bob Gibson. He had a 1.12 ERA. Louis Tiant, who we'll hear a lot more about later in a few, in a few episodes, uh, at that time was pitching for Cleveland. He led the American League with a 1.60. But the big thing was seven starters had an ERA below two. You're the pitcher. Yeah. Uh, uh, Carl Yaskramski led the American League in batting with a 301 batting average. That'll get it done. Yeah. Uh, Den- and Denny McLean won 30 games that year. But that, I mean, whether that hit, you know, we, we, we know about wins and law, you know, wins for pitchers, right. but still, he's the last 30 game winner in baseball. And it came that year. Yep. You know what they did to, to to battle this dominant. Yeah, they lowered the mound they, from 15 inches to 10 inches, and they also restored the pre-63 strike zone, where before it had been shoulders to knees. They went to the top of the knees to the armpits. It apparently did make a difference because in '69 the average offensive runs went from 6.84 a game to 8.14 a game. So apparently the the movements they you know the changes they made did make a difference. I mentioned the Montreal Expos earlier, but uh, it was the first expansion for the Major League Baseball since uh, 1961, and so you have these changes in the, the height of the mound and, and changes designed to help the hitters, but you also uh, do, dilute the pitching staffs around the league a little bit more as well by adding some expansion teams, right? Yeah, and that could have had as much to do with that change in, in statistics and, and runs per game as, as anything else they did. In fact, if I remember right, in ball four, doesn't Bowden talk about he really thinks lower in the mound gives the pitchers a bigger advantage because you're closer to the plate? That was that was his contention, and who's to argue yeah. with uh, Jim Bowden? Yeah. And that year, the National League added uh, San Diego and Montreal, San Diego Padres and the, the Montreal Expos. The American League added a team in Kansas City. You may know who that team is. And then Seattle, but not the, not the Mariners, as uh, my young friend called them as we were growing up. The Seattle Pilots. And that's where Ball Four comes back into it, right? Yep. And and if you haven't read Ball Four, shame on you. Get the book. Read the book because it, it holds up well. The, the the humor holds up well, and, and it's a good snapshot of baseball at the time. Well, it was, and it was a completely honest snapshot. Jim Bouton had been a former All Star pitcher with the Yankees, and he was kind of trying to hang on as a knuckleball pitcher at that time with the expansion uh, Seattle Pilots, and uh, he just he, he memorialized the whole year, and it was real inside. 
story, inside study of uh, Clubhouse and, and the way things happen in, in the hotels and in the uh, on the buses. And it was just, if you, it really, if you haven't read it, I cannot recommend it high, more highly. Uh, Ball Four by Jim Bowden. So. Yep. And, and the other thing that happened that year was not only did the, did the major leagues expand, but for the first time they expanded the playoffs and divided the leagues into, into divisions. And, and, you know, we complain about the wild card when they added the wild card, uh, although that's been a while back now. Uh, you know, and every time they fiddle with the playoffs, we complain. But that's a huge change, whereas just one team from each league was uh, was in the uh, in the World Series. Now, all of a sudden, you have a second, uh, another round of playoffs, and then you have uh, have teams that, uh, you know, weren't the, the top team in the league having a chance to make it to the World Series. That's a, that was a huge change. Oh, yeah, you doubled the number of teams in the playoffs. And, and, the, and the other thing that was kind of strange is the way that the at least the National League was aligned. And and I've heard stories about that there was some politics about St. Louis and Chicago uh, wanting to stay in the same division and and have comp you know and have you know old rivalries with like the Mets you know with the New York team at least with the New York teams. And that's why the Reds and the Braves ended up in the NL West while St. Louis and Chicago were in the NL East. Uh, uh, um, the lineup in the American League made a lot more sense, except. They put both the expansion teams into the NL West. Right, right, right. And and for years, I could never understand how, why the Reds were in the uh, National League West growing up. And, and as it turned out, that became a big part of the narrative for what the Big Red Machine would be in that they're they're with the Dodgers in the National League West, and those two teams really became the teams that were battling every single year. So who knows what the what it would have been like if they'd been in the in the East as they really should have been, frankly. Yeah, you, you might have had a lot more interesting NLCSs if you'd had the Reds and the Dodgers playing in the, in the NLCS uh, rather than battling out over 162 games for one spot. Right, it's a great point. It's a great point. So, so again, it, baseball on its own was in a state of transition at that time, and, and the Reds were kind of in a state of transition as well. They had made it to the World Series in 61, but had been, you know, kind of a, you know, up and down since then. And... Uh, we get to 1968, and they finish the year 1968. Uh, you know, they're uh, fourth place in the National League. And again, that was before division, so 83 and 79, four games above. Some things changed, I guess, from uh, from 68 to 69. And, and, and let's talk a little bit, if we could, Bill, about the roster moves that the Reds made after the season because a lot of them have real impact on what would happen, not just the following year, but uh, with the way the big red machine was developed. Absolutely. Uh, to me, the biggest trade was one made in, in early October with with the uh, with the Cardinals, uh, where the Reds traded off you know a, a guy that was a legend in Cincinnati at the time, uh, Veda Pinson, uh, who was just a great player. He's one of those guys that many people say is a borderline Hall of Famer over the course of his career. If, if nothing else, he'd be at the top of the Hall of Very Very Good. But he was getting a little older, and the Reds traded him for Bobby Tolan and, and Wayne Granger, uh, who, two guys that were uh, key to the Reds' early success as the Big Red Machine. Yeah, you could look back at this one as sort of the way you we analyzed the uh, Frank Robinson trade to Baltimore. You know, an old 30. He was just 29 then his last year, Veda Pinson was, with the Cincinnati Reds, and really had, coming up at age 19, had been an outstanding, just a mainstay in the Reds' outfield for uh, for more than a decade. And so... That trade, uh, you know, probably if we had a podcast in October of 1968, we'd have been screaming about it, you know, at that time. Uh, although Tolan had some uh, had some uh, perceived value, and, and Wayne Granger ended up uh, really being a uh, contributor there for a while. You know, it's it's one where you're trading away a guy that's a 
clear Reds Hall of Famer. And, uh, and, you very, know, very, and very, very popular in town. Extremely popular. And, uh, yeah, so uh, that could have gone uh, another way. And we'll talk a little more about how how it did go for the Reds as we go throughout this uh, series. But, you know, Wayne Granger in particular in 1970, I guess, was uh, really instrumental, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. He, he, he became uh, – he had two or three really good years for the Reds. And I'm not sure of this without looking it up. But I, I think he was also a uh, fireman of the year, one of the years he was with the Reds. Yeah. So, you know, uh, trading Veda Pinson ultimately, it, it was kind of the, putting a stamp on uh, or closing the book on the Reds of the early to mid-60s because Pinson and, and Frank Robinson and that bunch had really been the guys that got the Reds to the, the World Series in 61. And, and Pinson was that last link to those successful teams of the early 60s. And so, really, we're talking about building the machine and that that's a point where you can look at and say, okay, here we're really turning a page, and this is really, in a lot of ways, a new era of, of red. And that's why we're starting. Everybody thinks of the big red machine as the 70s, but that's why we think it has to begin in late 68 and, and 69, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's like this. You know, the next trade that we're going to talk about a little bit here that happened in November. The Reds traded their starting shortstop, Leo Cardenas, to the Twins to, for Jim Merritt. In a few years, you know, we'll have a shortstop, that becomes, again, many people think he's a Hall of Famer, borderline Hall of Famer, whatever, and Davey Concepcion. But Cardenas had been at shortstop for a number of years for the Reds, was a, was a very popular player in town, was a, was a pretty good ball player, and they trade him for a guy that ends up becoming the Reds' next 20-game winner. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much for, for mentioning that, because uh, Cardenas fits that exact same uh, profile. You know, he was uh, he, uh, really a part-time player in 61, but remember those good Reds teams? He played nine years and was a four-time All-Star. In Cincinnati. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a legit, a really good player. Age 29, he's out the door. And and you're right, there are two two big things about that. Number one, they get Jim Merritt, who we'll talk about in some uh, some length. But also, the point you make is that it's it's really paving the way for the next great red shortstop. And, and it's sort of a line of great shortstops we had there for a while. Cardenas was a great one, and, uh, and Concepcion becomes so key to the big red machine. Yeah, and I think we're going to see that this is kind of a, a Bob Housem theory guess is the branch ricky theory is you'd rather trade a guy you know a year too early than than a year too late and so when they get to be around 30 if if he thinks it's time to move a guy you know that he can help the team that's what he's going to do yeah and since you mentioned uh, bob hausman i do want to note that uh, i think in one of our future episodes we're going to have a little segment on on bob hausman because we really do need to talk about bob hausman and how important he was in constructing the machine and uh, and how uh, you know some of his decisions contributed to how the big red machine ended up. So we're going to go into that in a future episode. But Bob Housen's name is going to be sprinkled all throughout every episode of this series, I'm sure. Absolutely, and and, and I mean he's the architect. He and, and and the scouting department is the other thing we're going to talk about that that can't be talked about too much when you're talking about the the building of the machine. Absolutely, without question. What's the next transaction we need to look at? The only other one here that I, I mean, they, they, they got Jimmy Stewart, who ends up being a part of the, the big trade in 72. He was great in Hitchcock's rear window. No, it's not him. It's oh. not the one with Grace Kelly. It's, it's oh. super sub Jimmy Stewart. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. And then they, they also traded Ted Abernathy, who'd been a good reliever for the Reds, and, and they got Bill Plummer, who would be a part of the, the big Red Machine teams in the mid-70s. Never a really big player. In fact, I heard a joke one time about Bill Plummer that they kept him around for the fights. <laughs> you know, Bill Plummer he's one of my favorite uh, characters in Reds history because he played with the Reds for eight years. 
But over those eight years, he got a total of 899 plate appearances. He, you know, he hit 186 during his time with the Reds. <laughs> you know, he never played more than uh, 65 games was his high water mark. But yet he was a he was a member of the big red machine and was there on the team throughout all those years. I guess if you're if you're behind, the Reds had some other catcher, I guess. And when you're behind a guy that's as good as him, you're not going to play much. But yeah, Bill yeah, Plummer. It, it, it's kind of hard to get a whole lot of playing time when you're playing behind the guy that's the the greatest of all time at your position. <laughs> it's a little difficult, absolutely. And before we get into the sort of day to day of the Reds in 1969. And, and sort of discuss how the season played out. I wanted to talk about a couple things. First of all, I want to just go ahead and, and let's discuss who the uh, the starting lineup and the the regular starters and the starting pitchers. Then I want to talk about uh, Dave Bristol, who is the uh, Reds manager. Now the regular starting lineup catcher Johnny Bench. He was okay. He was all right. First base, Lee May, the big bopper from Birmingham. The big popper. Second base, Tommy Helms. Uh, an all-star. Third base, Tony Perez. He could hit. Shortstop that year, taking over from uh, Leo Cardenas, was uh, Woody Woodward. Who goes on to become a general manager in Seattle, I believe. Yes, that's correct. Left fielder, Alex Johnson. I know we're going to talk about him a little bit more as well. Uh, an interesting what-if name it to me in, in Reds history. Bobby Tolan, the center fielder. Who had just come over. We talked about him. Pete Rose in right field. He was pretty good. He, you know, he'd won a, a batting title there going in. He was all right. And then the start, primary starting pitchers for the Reds in uh, 1969, uh, Jim Merritt, who went 17-9. Tony Cloninger, who had come over in a trade from the Braves. Jim Maloney, who was 29 that year. He was really the only holdover uh, for, for any, any length of time from those earlier teams. He, was the, he kind of bridged the gap between eras. I would say Jim Maloney's the, the one guy that did that. Yeah. 21-year-old Gary Nolan. Who was a fireballer. And we'll be talking a lot about Gary Nolan in the next few years. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Uh, Wayne Granger, Clay Carroll, uh, yeah, those were your primary relievers. Jack Fisher. So uh, that's the that's the 69 Reds. Now, the skipper of these teams, because he, to me, is one of the interesting uh, names in Reds history that's kind of forgotten a little bit. And I think Dave Bristol really... Needs uh, to get a little bit of credit for what happened with the uh, Big Red Machine, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and and Rose said Dave was absolutely instrumental in the building of the Big Red Machine. He put the pieces in place. He said Sparky was the best manager I ever played for, but Dave Bristol had a big hand in the Big Red Machine. When, when Bristol took over the Reds in, in July of 66, he was the youngest manager in Major League Baseball. The Reds were never under 500 with with Bristol as a manager. And he had managed a lot of these guys that were that were big leaguers at this time. He managed a lot of them in the minor leagues. He had come up through the Reds' system. And like I said, he never finished below 500 with the Reds. And then once he left the Reds, he never had another team that finished over 500. You know, you, and you wonder about Dave Bristol because you're right. Pete Rose and, some, and other Reds really uh, give uh, Bristol big credit for what he did. And he ended up uh, being replaced after this year. But uh, you wonder what he could have done uh, with the with the Big Red Machine. And and we're going to talk a lot over this series about the what ifs, and uh, and that's one of to me. What what if Dave Bristol had been given a chance to manage these guys, and and he did come up through the system with a lot of them, and and would it have been different? Would it have been better? Would it have been worse? I don't think we know as much as we love Sparky Anderson. Pretty tough to to make the case that it could have been better. That's a that's a good point. <laughs> Sparky did okay, huh? Yeah, he did. He did okay. All right, let's move into the regular season here, and we'll begin with 
April 7th, opening day, the 100th anniversary season of professional baseball. How'd the Reds do that day? Well, they got beat. So it's going to be a bad year. Yeah, you know, you can't win them all if you don't win the first one. That's what they tell me. So lost 3-2 to two to the Dodgers before 30,111 30, at Crosley Field. And surprisingly, the Reds' opening day started that day was Gary Nolan. <laughs> 21 years old. And struck out 12. Uh, in seven innings, right, but uh, but took the loss. Yep. Uh, I note I note that Pete Rose started that day center field that day. It's the fifth uh, fifth straight year he had started at a different position on opening day. That's got uh, no one's ever going to match that. I'm sure. Uh, that's amazing center field, and you don't ever remember Pete Rose ever playing much center field. It wasn't, it wasn't that he was very speedy, but you also have to remember they were playing in Crosley, much smaller outfield. That's true. Let's uh, fast forward to April the fifteenth. The Reds beat the Giants eleven to ten that day in a twelve inning. Uh, showdown at uh, Crosley Field. Reds scored three in the ninth to tie the game at eight, and uh, then San Francisco scored two in the tenth. And the Reds tied the game again. The winning run scored when Alex Johnson tripled, and then Johnny Bench singled. Um, can we talk about Alex Johnson for a moment? He could hit. He's a guy that just you know he was uh, see twenty six years old that year. Ended up hitting three fifteen, three fifty on base, seventeen homers. I mean. This is a guy that was, and in the following year, was an all-star, although not with the not with the Reds. But this was a guy that I don't know. He who's one that at the time, again, if we were podcasting at that time, you'd say this guy needs to be a centerpiece of the next Reds team, right? You mentioned the next year, and and he won the batting title the next year. That's right. In the it's interesting that the Reds, uh, and we'll talk about when him getting dealt away before we begin our next episode. But for this season, he was a key contributor on this team that a lot of Reds fans this day and age don't remember because he was gone from the Reds at age 26 and really only spent two seasons in Cincinnati, 68 and 69, and uh, was pr- awfully good in both of those years. Well, and he, I mean, at least early on in the season, I can't remember all season whether he was, but at least early on in the season, he was their three-hitter. That's that's saying something. There's some pretty good hitters on that team. Yeah. You know, he had a, a, a career that kind of tailed pretty quickly. You know, by the time he was 30 was his really his last but you know, around 30, 31 was about the time he was he was pretty finished, and he had a couple bad years in 71 and 72. My memory of him was that, that there was talk of he had an attitude problem, and that was one of the reasons the Reds traded him. But there isn't any doubt about the fact that this guy knew what to do with the stick. Uh, we probably won't uh, spend much of our time complaining about the Reds trading him because it, uh, it worked out. But Alex Johnson uh, needs to be remembered by Reds fans. Now, later that month, the end of the month, April 30th, Jim Maloney – pitched a, a, a no-hitter and uh, some argument. It's officially, I think, his second no-hitter right. by the record books, but in some ways it was his third career no-hitter, right? Yep. I think he had one that went into 10 innings, and because he gave up a hit in the 10th inning, it didn't count, it didn't count as a no-hitter or something like that. And it's just it's just crazy. That was actually um, uh, June 14, 1965. He no-hit the Mets for 10 innings and then yeah. allowed a hit in the 11th. Have I ever told you my Jim Maloney story? I don't. You may have, but you haven't told all of our listeners. So go ahead. Well, for one thing, we did. We have a, an interview on file at Red Leg Nation Radio that we did with Jim Maloney a few years ago. It was great, and, and it, it was very, very good. I was very excited to do that. But when I was when I was a kid, and this is even you know before '69, this has probably been in '64, '65, '66 in there. My grandparents 
manage an apartment complex over on the west side of Cincinnati. And a lot of the Reds lived there at the time. Rose lived there. Maloney lived there. Uh, Don Pavletic, Jim Coker, Darren Johnson, Art Shamsky lived there. And my grandpa, they'd always ask my grandpa if he wanted to go to the ball game. And my grandpa took me to the Reds game one night, and they had a get they had a giveaway where the players went up in the stands, and they every player had a prize assigned to them. And the players went up into the stands and shook hands with the fans. And when they sounded this horn, whoever the player was shaking hands with, they won that player's prize. Well, Maloney knew where my grandpa was was sitting, and he stayed like right close to him. And when the horn started to sound, he ripped his hand away from the guy he was shaking his hand with and whips around and grabs my grandpa's hand so my grandpa would win a television set. <laughs> yes. Fantastic. And many years, a few years later, I ended up with that television set. So it all it, it worked out for the best for me. Uh, the, and, and the moral of the story is? <laughs> Cheaters do prosper. <laughs> Cheaters. Wait a minute. I'm not sure that's the actual <laughs> lesson we want all the children listening to Red Leg Nation Radio to uh, to learn. But... Uh, Jim Maloney's television. You still watch that television, right? No, I don't have it anymore. It was it was a nice black and white. It was about, yeah, I would guess it was like a 24-inch or something. It was glorious. So Jim Maloney throws his uh, no-hitter, uh, officially his second no-hitter, in a 10 to nothing win over the Astros at Crosley Field on that day. Struck out 13, walked 5, and even drove in a run. Something happened interesting the next day as well. Another no-hitter, right? Yeah. <laughs> Only the bad guys pull it off the next day when Don Wilson no hit the Reds. Yeah, that wasn't quite as much fun. I don't re- I don't remember watching that one on MLB.tv, but I would not have been happy. No, you probably wouldn't have. Yeah, so only the second uh, time in history there's been no hitters in consecutive games involving the same two teams. So uh, we move into May. You know, as as the Reds finish up April, they're you know they're they're doing okay. They're doing all right. Uh, finish up April uh, right around five hundred. Not exactly where they hoped they would be, but uh, they're they're hanging in there. And then uh, May 3rd and May 4th, to me, something that we'll never see these days, right? Right. The Reds had a pitcher named Tony Kloninger, and, and he was kind of a big, stocky guy. And he was one of them. And, and back in these days, you didn't really have specialized, you know, pitchers. So he, he started this this day on, on, on uh, what is this, May the 3rd against – the Padres at Crosley. He, he doesn't even get out of the first inning. He doesn't get an out. He gives up three hits and two walks and ends up giving up five runs because Jim Merritt gets beat up right behind him. Jim Merritt only gets gets one out. So the Reds are on their third pitcher and they're still in the first inning. And they end up giving up nine runs and getting beat 13-5. to five. So Kleininger's gotten beat up, and this is on a Saturday, I assume probably a Saturday evening because there's, there's only 4,900 people in the ballpark. And then the next day, they're playing a doubleheader. And in the second game of the doubleheader, Kleininger throws a complete game, <laughs> two-hit shutout against the same team. The very next day. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You'll never see that uh, that these days. I, I and I don't think it's I don't think it's in here because I don't think it's in these box scores. I would be a wonder. I wonder how many pitches he threw in the game that he didn't get an out. Yeah, can you imagine? Yeah. Oh man. So Tony Cloninger setting records uh, that you'll never see anymore. He was a good hitting pitcher. He was, as a matter of fact, past Michael Lorenzen. Right? That's what we'll call him. Without the biceps. <laughs> Without the well, nobody's got the Mikey biceps. So, you know, nobody's like that. 
May 9th, the Reds play their first regular season game outside of the United States and beat uh, the Montreal Expos 8-5 to in a game shortened by rain. So the Expos... Jerry Park, where they played uh, until uh, later in the 70s when they moved to uh, Olympic Stadium. So I I don't remember Jerry Park, uh, anything about that, but uh, the ballparks of that era are, I guess maybe in some ways they are similar to the parks we have these days in terms of dimensions and things like that because we've had this retro craze for the last 20 years. The field are, the stands were not. I remember the outfield of Jerry Park looked like a high school bleacher. Right, right, right. And then we and we're coming into the era very soon of all the uh, multi-purpose stadiums. So this these are the these are the last years of uh, these old stadiums that you're right. A lot of instances look like something. If you go back and look at the pictures and, and the videos, look like something you couldn't even believe. Uh, you could play, they're playing Major League Baseball on. We don't realize how good we have it these days. And, and it's interesting if you like. I'm looking at the the Expos box score from this game. The guys that were playing for the Expos at the time, Mari Wills, who'd been a great for the for the Dodgers for years and years and years. Rusty Staub, Mac Jones, who had been a Red the previous year, Don Clendenin, who would who would had been you know would go on and be a, a, a star for the Mets in the World Series this year, uh, Mudcat Grant, who pitched for the Pirates, they were all on this Expos team. Mudcat Grant, man, well, we don't we don't have nicknames like that anymore. Catfish and Mudcat. I know, no, right? We don't have those good nicknames anymore. No, we sure don't. Late May twenty fourth, twenty fifth, twenty eighth, the Big Bopper. Had a little bit of a run there, didn't he? Yeah, he did all right. He, he hit like six home runs over a couple of games, over three games. Two of them were against the Expos, and one against the Pirates. He went six for ten with six home runs. <laughs> That'll get it done. Yeah, th- th- that's not a bad three days. <laughs> and he walked uh, twice that time too, so he was on base eight out of twelve times. Yeah, that's a that's a good month for a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> that's a career for some guys. <laughs> yeah, really. No question about it. Now, I love, the, the as we move on to May 30th, something that you wouldn't see too often. You may, may still see it someday, but uh, not if uh, the powers that be have their way and, and introduce introduce the uh, designated hitter to the National League. But Clay Carroll, on May 30th, hits a 10th inning home run to beat the Cardinals 4-3 to in St. Louis. His only home run he ever hit. His only home run he ever hit. And who did he hit it off of? Well, the guy, this guy had a pretty good career. He was okay. Yeah, his his name was Gibson. Yeah. He pitched for the Cardinals. Bob Gibson, who the year before had been the greatest pitcher on the planet and was still uh, among those names in 1969, Clay Carroll, Reds pitcher, hits a tenth inning home run to beat him. Uh, <laughs> at that time, at that time, Gibson's ERA was 1.74. Gosh, full count, tenth inning. That's fantastic. Well, and Carroll did that on top of throwing three three hitless innings and getting the win. Uh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> that, that'll play, man. That'll play. That's a pretty good day. And and that game was the eighth of nine consecutive wins for the Reds. They they you know they they're at the low water mark of four games under five hundred, eight and a half games out, uh, and that was uh, on May seventeenth. But by the end of the month. They're five games over, and in third place, three and a half games out. So the big nine-game winning streak, and they're starting to make a little bit of noise in the National League West, right? Yeah, they are, and, and, and as we'll talk about a little later, this this pennant race stays tight all the way to late September. Yeah, absolutely, and and it was, you know, for the Reds, it was a chance to, uh, I guess maybe with the divisional uh, status of the leagues, it a lot more teams were in pennant races, but it was a fun time to be a Reds fan, frankly. It was getting to be a, a fun time, and, and and that you know that season was just one of those ones where you were you were scoreboard watching from July on. 
yeah. and, and checking the you know box scores and the standings every day. What's that like? Well, I hope we find out again here soon. I do too. I hope so. So, moving to to June, and you know, June the Reds stayed competitive throughout the month. But really, the biggest thing we want to point out was, in terms of building the machine, the draft was on June the fifth, and the Reds picked some guys that were absolutely instrumental in what the machine would become. Right? Yeah, they got a they got a, a, a you know, Ken Griffey Senior out of out of Pennsylvania. They drafted Raleigh Eastwick and this young kid out of out of Kentucky that was an all around athlete. His name was Don Gullett. They all had pretty good careers. Yeah, and and all three were key parts of the uh, Reds World Series winning teams in the seventies. So that's a pretty good draft. You know, we look at we measure the Reds drafts these days. You know, now I'm going to start uh, saying if you don't get three guys the the caliber of Don Gullett, Raleigh Eastwick, and King Griffey uh, Senior every year, it's a it's you know, it's a wasted year as far as I'm concerned. Well, it's it's the beginnings of the Bob Hauslam scouting system taking effect for the Reds, I think. Oh, that's that's a great uh, great point, no question. So we get to uh, Independence Day that year. The Reds are five games back, uh, still hovering f- about five games over, uh, and they beat the Dodgers on July 4th. That day we want to identify not only because the Reds won and it was Independence Day and that's always fun, but there was something else kind of uh, momentous about that day. You want to talk about that? It's, it seems like that was the first day the, the, the nickname Big Red Machine was, was used in print. It was used uh, by uh, Los Angeles Herald-Examiner reporter Bob Hunter in his game uh, recap in the next day's paper, wrote... Bristol, the boy manager of the Big Red Machine, took Tony Cloninger out with two on and one down in the ninth. So that seems to have been the first time that it appeared in print. Didn't really stick until later, I don't think, but when uh, Bob Herzl of the Cincinnati Inquirer started using it, uh, he used it on a a front-page story on the Reds in August. Can we talk for just a moment about that name, the Big Red Machine? There have been a lot of dynasties in the history of sports, but can you really have an actual dynasty that's memorable throughout the eras if you don't have a name and that name is just beautiful isn't it oh yeah i mean you know that you know the the, the you know 27 yankees were sluggers murderers row and 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 but the you know the a's had won three world series in a row and they didn't really have a nickname that i remember except you know everybody said they needed a haircut <laughs> right ah uh, <laughs> uh, the early 70s into that yeah so, yeah, no, I, I think that's a, you know, the Reds were obviously great on the field, and they were a legitimate dynasty, and I have a real argument for being the greatest dynasty in the history of baseball. But the reason, it seems to me like a big part of the reason they endure to this day is just, that name is just, you know, the big red machine. It's it's great. It's why we remember the Nasty Boys. You know, these these names help connect through the eras. So the Chris big, Saber was Spuds. That's true. He was Spuds. Yeah. Uh, we'll do that in our 19 uh, series on the 1990s Reds. <laughs> no, we're not going to do a series on the Reds of the 90s because there was a couple of good years in there. But lot, overall, it'd be just too depressing to talk about. A lot of heartache. So, uh, July 19th. This was a this was a huge one. On July 19th, the Reds are down nine to nothing to the Astros, and they come back to win 10-9 in 11 innings. Uh, Bobby Tolan had five uh, runs batted in. That was his first year with the Reds, and he had a, we talked about him just briefly earlier, but, man, really solid year for the Reds, right? Well, he had an OPS plus of 124. He, he's, you know, he stole 26 bases. He got thrown out 12 times, but, he, you know, he hit 21 home runs for him. Now, they were still playing in Crossley then, so I'm sure, I'm guessing a lot of those balls 
were dumped into the sun deck out there in right field. He also had 10 triples, 305 yeah. average. Drove in 93. At the age of 23 five, as well. Yeah, and he had a 5.4 war. 5.4 wins above replacement, although that was only the fourth best on the Reds that season yeah. because yeah. three effective Hall of Famers were ahead of him, right? Yeah, they, they, that team could hit pretty well. Yeah, Pete Rose, Johnny Bench, Tony Perez were ahead of him. Pete Rose uh, had uh, 6.6 wins above replacement. Bench had 6.2. And again, Bench was 21. Pete Rose was 28. And Tony Perez, six wins above replacement. He was 27. So, man, what this team. This And this really is the, the beginnings of what we yeah. would know as the Big Red Machine. And this team was really, really young. Yeah, yeah, and that's why we call it, uh, called the show Building the Machine because here you can start to see the seeds of what we're going to grow into this powerful uh, club. So August, uh, move into August now. As the Reds uh, finish up July, sort of in the, in the same area, but they've moved a little bit ahead on the basis of a five-game win streak at the uh, end of July, beginning of August. They moved up to third place just a, just a game and a half out. So they did move up to ten games over over 500 at that time and uh, and starting to make some real noise. And and actually, uh, by August the 3rd, the Reds tie for first place. In they, the, and, and, and they had a real pitcher's duel that day. <laughs> they did. We're talk- well, you were talking about the hitters. Tell us about that game. Well, the Reds won 19-17. to 17, And no, that wasn't a football score. They didn't kick a field goal late to win it. There were 46 hits in this game. Yikes. Reds had Bench 25 had of them. Alex Johnson had four. Perez had four. Uh, Rose had three. Woody Woody Woodward had three. Lee May hit a home run. Pete Rose hit a home run. Alex Johnson hit a home run. Tony Perez hit a home run. The red starter that day was Camilo Pasquale. <laughs> Purchased I, on July 7th from the Washington Senators. I have no idea who he is. I, <laughs> have, I have no memory of him. Or Pedro Ramos, who also pitched that day well. badly. Yeah, not not very well, no question. Wayne Granger got the win that day, though, for throwing three scoreless innings. And, and you threw three scoreless <laughs> innings on a day that you win 1917. That's pretty good. That's Hall of Fame level right there. <laughs> 19 runs. You know, there have been most years that I, since I've been a Reds fan where 19 runs would have been a good week. So, anyway, uh, the Reds have, uh, that's, you know, they're tied for the lead now in uh, the National League West. And things are getting a little bit exciting around Cincinnati. Uh, it, it's It's... The Reds, again, had not been to the World Series, not so the playoffs had not been to the postseason in eight years. We're right in the thick of things. August 10th, Gary Nolan retired the first 18 hitters, ended up with a three-hit complete game, 10 to nothing, versus the Phils. And, again, we don't need to go too deep into Gary Nolan right now but because we're going to be talking about him so much over the course of this series. But he, to me, is one of the great uh, under-known, if that makes sense. That's not really a term, but... He, he should be more well-known amongst Reds fans, it seems like to me, because this guy was as talented a pitcher as maybe the Reds have ever had, just in terms of sheer talent. Well, and not only that, he transformed himself for some reasons that we'll talk about in the next, you know, the next few episodes. At, at the, the point that we're talking about now, Nolan was a fireball pitcher. I mean, he, he could bring it up there. Uh, had a little bit of problem with, with control at times, but again, a lot of strikeouts. Uh, if you look at, at Nolan's career numbers, early in his career, he pitched a ton of innings. Well, his rookie year when he was 19, he threw 226. Then he had a couple of years that he didn't throw as many. And I'm assuming he had some injury problems in 69 here because he only threw 108 innings. 
but then he threw 250 in 1970 and, and 244 in 71. I mean, that's a lot of innings. And, and we'll talk about more of that about this later and some of the things that Gary Nolan goes through and, and both health-wise and with the ball club. Absolutely. He's going to be one of the key names as we go through building the machine. Now, the Reds uh, leading up to August 13th, they've won nine out of 12 games on the 13th of August. They beat Montreal 8-3 to in 11 innings, and they, at that time, take a two-and-a-half game lead, which was their largest of the season to that point. So uh, we're talking about late in the year, you know, mid-August, the Reds are uh, starting to pull away a little bit, uh, two-and-a-half game lead, right? As much as anybody pulled away in this division this year. Yeah, because pretty quickly, at the end of August, they were in second place, a half game behind. And that's the way it was really the, yeah. whole, the whole year. So, But again, that's exciting uh, stuff for, for many of us Reds fans who've grown up with so many uh, bad seasons that the Reds were not just in, in the mix, but uh, certainly fully capable of winning. September 3rd, Jim Maloney shut out the Cubs on two hits. September 8th, I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, day for uh, for Wayne Granger. You want to talk about that day? Yeah, this is this is this is another day that I don't think you would see this happen. In the in the first game, Granger gets a save where he, he pitches an inning of relief and he gets a save. Then in the second game of the doubleheader, he throws eight innings of relief and gets the win. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to see that anymore. That put the Reds back uh, just barely ahead by uh, half a game, right? Yep. And we keep talking about this Western Division race being the, one of the tightest that we've ever seen. But can you kind of give us some context on, the, I think, September 10th right there? That's a, a good place to to talk about how close it was. Yeah, it's a good bookmark spot because uh, on September the 10th, there were two games separating the Reds, the Braves, the Giants, the Dodgers, and the Astros. So you go one to five and you're, it's a two-game separation. That tells you how close this 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 was at this point. And and you, you you had no idea who was going to win this division. I mean, you knew you know everybody had their favorites, and you know I was I can remember as a kid. And this was a, for myself. This was the first season where I you know got the paper every day so that I could see what the you know you know I listen to the game every night, and the next morning I you know had to find the standings to see who won and who lost. And God, they're playing on the West Coast. How do I find out where they won last night? Because you didn't have the internet, you didn't have any of these ways of finding these things out. Right, right, yeah. So you're, you you got to run out to the doorstep in the morning and then grab that newspaper. September 12th, the Reds, uh, and this was, again, we talked about September 10th being the, the bookmark place because it started to kind of go awry for the Reds at that point. September 12th, Juan Marshall, one hit the Reds at uh, Candlestick. That was a, uh, you know, just sort of a brutal loss. Yeah, they got beat one to nothing. One to nothing. Tommy Helms got the only Reds hit, and that was the day that they dropped out of first place, and... Never, never regained it, and they went on a pretty rough stretch uh, really right during that time up through September 20th, didn't they? The red, the red starter that day was Jerry Arrigo. And he started a number of games that season. He was probably the, uh, you know, he was, uh, I think, the fifth uh, fifth best he starter. 16, yeah, he started 16 games for him that year. There's a famous story about Jerry Arrigo and Johnny Bench, and, and I don't even know if this is true, but I know I've heard it more than once. Where, where Bench told him to throw the ball harder. Yes. He was the pitcher in that famous anecdote. I didn't realize he was the pitcher in that. Yeah, and, and to, to make his point, Bench caught his pitch barehanded and threw it back to him. Yeah. <laughs> it may be apocryphal, I don't know, but I've heard yeah, that story like said, as well. I don't know if it's true or not, but I, 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 I've heard it more than once. 
So between September 9th and September 20th, the Reds lose 9 of 13 games. Now, and again, to show you how close this division was, five of those losses were by one run, um, and two came in a doubleheader to the Dodgers on the 16th. So uh, the Reds were really close to being able to stay in this, but unfortunately it, it tips the other direction at that time. During that stretch, uh, September 19th to the 28th, good chance to mention uh, your favorite book and mine, Ball Four, right? Because Jim Bouton threw against the Reds five times during that stretch. Yeah, he had, and, and that's it, not to steal the thunder of the book, but it, Bouton starts with the Seattle Pilots, and at some point in the season, he's traded to the Houston Astros. So he, he went from the outhouse to the penthouse. You know, he went from a, a, a just a god awful expansion team to a team fighting in, a, in the tightest division race, well, one of the tightest pennant races in history. During this period, he, he pitched against the Reds five times. Some of the games did he did better, and some of the games he did worse. The the, the 19th, he threw two innings against them and didn't allow a run in a Houston win. And the 21st, he threw two innings, gave up one run in a game the Reds won. But then once the, the, the uh, pennant had been kind of decided, I believe, by then, he threw against the Reds on the 25th, 26th, and 28th, and he gave up four runs and an inning and two thirds. So he didn't fare as well that time, but there's, there's quite a bit of talk about the reds in, in ball four. I wouldn't say quite a bit, but there's, there's a fair amount of talk about the reds and some derogatory comments about Cincinnati. <laughs> That's true, but it's a, always a good read. Always funny. September uh, 26, Jim Maloney throws a one hitter versus the Astros. Uh, the reds uh, are still three out. And then the following day, the reds lose four to three to the Houston Astros and are eliminated from the National League playoff race. So they, they hung close for a long time. Ultimately, uh, we'll talk in a moment about how the season finished and what's next, but that wasn't all. Uh, Pete Rose had a chance for a batting title that year as well, right? How'd that go? Yeah, he was he was leading Clemente by .0008 going into the last game of the season, and, and, he, and he clinched the batting title with a bunt single. So the Reds don't win, but can you wrap up what the 1969 season, How what, what happened that year and, and kind of run through the uh, the season, and, and then we'll talk about the context of what it means moving forward. Finished 89-73, right? Yeah, and, and really, you know, five games above, you know, the, where the Pythagorean says they should have been. They drew almost a million people. You know, they were 13,000 below a million people, which at the time was eighth out of 12th in the National League. But you got to remember they were playing in Crossley Field at the time, which was a much smaller ballpark than they'd be in. They'd go into halfway through the following year. Pete Rose had a great year. Probably the best Reds Reds hitter that year. Yeah, it was, and it was. It, it, he won his second consecutive batting title. He won a Gold Glove. You know, he hit three forty eight, hit two hundred hits again, he had eleven triples, and eleven triples. That's a lot of triples, especially for a guy that isn't really fast. Did, you think maybe it's because he hustled? I heard. I heard that he used to hustle. I heard that he had a nickname. I can't remember what it was. Uh, oh, he's got plenty of them. Um, <laughs> He's got a lot more now than he used to. <laughs> right, yeah. Certainly uh, on a team of, of good hitters, but a lot of them young and emerging. That was uh, and, and maybe Rose's high watermark in some ways. Uh, second consecutive batting title, as you said. Uh, Jim Maloney, that was probably his last good year, right? It, it was a very good year. He went 12-5, and five, he had an ERA plus of 135. We'll talk about what happens to him in 1970 in our next episode. But you wonder how the Reds might have been different if he'd been able to stay healthy. Yeah, if he continued to be Jim Maloney for a little bit longer, because again, he was just 29 in, yeah. in 1969. So. Another one of them 29-year-old guys. Right, yeah. And so you wonder what kind of a career he could have had, because he'd been really a, the mainstay of that rotation for a while once after emerging. So 
and, and through the mid-60s, I mean, he had been one of the dominant pitchers in the National League. I mean, people spoke of him in the same way they spoke of Drysdale and Koufax and and those guys, you know, Gibson and, and guys like that. I mean, he was, he was that good. Absolutely. Now, as we talk about building the machine, you mentioned earlier about how, uh, how young the lineup was. Average age of the Reds hitters was 26.3 years old, third youngest in the National League, but that didn't keep them from being productive, uh, extremely productive, right? They had four hitters with a war above five, six hitters with an OPS over 122. And then, you know, the war above five, as you said, were, were Rose, Bench, Perez, and Tolan. And the guys with the, the big OPS pluses were Rose, Perez, May, Bench, Tolan, and Alex Johnson. The other thing, and I, and I couldn't find this when I went back to look at this, but when, I, we, when you and I talked about this originally, I, I found somewhere on Baseball Reference where it showed a team's overall age. In, in franchise history, and I think next year's team, the 1970 team, is the youngest team in Reds history. So this one has to be very close to that. In terms of young hitters, they still led the league in batting average, on base percentage, slugging, and home runs. So it was young, but let's not underestimate how actual, actually productive they were. Fantastic. To put it in context, you have to remember that they were still playing in Crosley Field. But, you know, a lot of people would say that the, the batting average and things are going to go up when you start playing on artificial turf because it's it, it, it helps the hitters because the ball skids. Uh, but the ballparks get bigger. Well, and, and that's we talked about transitions in baseball, and one of the things we're going to talk about in our next episode will be the transition to Riverfront Stadium. And then, and then we'll talk about that even more once the Reds make a big trade with the Astros and how that uh, affected the way they approached playing at Riverfront Stadium. Uh, that mm-hmm. year, pitcher's average age is 27.3, uh, slightly higher than the league average, below league average in about every category. And the Reds pitching got better, certainly, but it was never the hallmark of the machine, right? People have always kind of downplayed the, the big red machines pitching, you know, as we get into the, the crux of the big red machine into the middle of 70s. But almost every year after 72 or 73, the Reds pitching was above average in the National League. And, and I don't think many people realize that. And that's one of our goals here uh, on building the machine to to try to remind people what it was really like with these teams. Now, Bill, do you have any final thoughts uh, about the 1969 team in particular and, and where its place is in the, the context of the quote-unquote big red machine? I think this team, I think they knew they you know that they, they, the pitching had to get better or healthier or both. Mr. Housen probably would have told you at the time that they – they were getting some young guys in the farm system that, that were going to help them, but they didn't know how far away they were. They felt like some changes had to be made, and they made them. Absolutely. So thank you, uh, everyone, for listening to Building the Machine, a brand-new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. To get each episode of the show delivered to you automatically, subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio. You can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, essentially wherever you find podcasts, we're there. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode came from BaseballReference.com and the books Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder and Ball Four by Jim Bowden. Until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying, So long, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>